Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. Today's episode, What It Feels Like to Be Me, featuring Brandon Wolf. Welcome, Brandon. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. So I wanted to start by asking you to talk to me, first of all, about what some of the words are that you would use to describe yourself in terms of your identities. Yeah, you know, I think um, it took me a long time to figure out what that even meant to me. Um, The first time I heard intersectional, it confused me. Uh, It sounded like a traffic accident waiting to happen. (laughs) That's the word that sticks out to me the most. Uh, And it's the one that I've returned to most often. Um, I truly am intersectional. So uh, I, I am black and also white. And I'm also a gay male. But that doesn't define who I am. You know, one or two or three words can't define who I am. And I think that's why I've returned to the word intersectional so often, because one or two of those words don't ever dictate how I live my life um, or how I experience things around me. It is an amalgam of everything. And, And they all kind of form the lens through which I view the world. So while I am gay and a man, and I prefer he, him, his pronouns, um, that also doesn't change the fact that I uh, am cognizant of everything else that makes up me. So I guess the word I would choose would be intersectional. That's a great answer. Uh, It is kind of a vague question. And a lot of times people will say, I don't know what you meant by that. It is intentionally vague, that question about identities, because I really am curious what people make of it and how they kind of make sense of the question. So when you talk about your identities as someone who um, identifies as intersectional, also as black, as male, as gay, as white, all of these things, how have those identities influenced your thoughts and feelings about healthcare? Well, I, you know, I had this conversation with my dad this weekend. He actually um, spent time with me in Orlando. It's the first time he's ever visited Florida uh, and we didn't leave things on a great, in, in a great place about nine years ago when I left home. And we specifically talked about healthcare and how me being who I am has affected my thoughts around my own healthcare. You know, growing up in a place, in a town, in a household that didn't necessarily understand who I was or where I was coming from meant that I truly believed that to be a minority to be in a marginalized community to identify as gay was a death wish and that nobody would want to help me. Um, That if I saw a doctor, I would always have to grapple with the idea that eventually I would have to tell him that I was sexually active with men. And you never quite know what the face you're going to get is. They're going to be welcoming to you. Um, Or if you'll ever go back to that doctor, it's almost like being on an awkward first date. You know, and so the reason I talked to my dad about that is that it took me too long to realize that my right to health care, my right to a healthy, happy life is not contingent upon who I fall in love with or how I see myself in the mirror, but that I am a human being. So I, I wish that it didn't take people so long. I think that's one thing that, um, you know, a lot of the LGBTQ community faces that they don't talk about is this fear of being rejected when you go to simply get a checkup or go to fill your prescription that somebody is going to turn you away based on who you are. What kind of experiences have you had or have you, you mentioned that it can feel a bit like an awkward first date. 
Have you had good experiences, bad experiences, awkward experiences? What's that been like for you? You know, I've had both. Um, I think one that sticks out to me as an awkward moment was in college. Um, I went for a checkup and um, when the doctor started to ask me about my lifestyle, um, he really got in depth about my sexual history. Obviously I'm in college, right? So they're, they're asking a lot of questions that they would ask college age students. But I could sense a, almost a feeling of tension when we started talking about me being sexually active with other men. It was as if he was thinking the same thing I was, that, well, why would you choose that? That, that would, you know, it's ultimately going to result in disease and death. It was almost like that was written on his face. And I felt ashamed. I felt awkward. I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. Uh, I never went back to that particular doctor. And it was unfortunate because it was like I was sacrificing being in a room talking about my own health and, and well-being because I didn't feel comfortable being me. So that sticks out, you know, and, and I've had a lot of other experiences. Uh, my best friend who passed away at Pulse had a master's degree in clinical psychology. And he was by far the most influential person I've had in my life so far. And I think it was that lens through which he looked at the world um, that helped him be so influential in my life. He was the person who would tell you that you are beautiful just the way you are. He's the person who would tell you that you could be comfortable being in your own skin. And he was also the person who would challenge you to not get complacent about things. That when you felt, um, you know, you'd finally arrived, that you'd found your place in life, that you needed to reach back and bring other people on that journey with you. So he took a really, I, I guess he just, you know, looked at the whole picture when he looked at mental health care, that it wasn't just about sit down on my couch and tell me all your problems, but he really truly believed that his role in the world as a healthcare professional um, was to make it easier to be people like him. So you mentioned Pulse and you mentioned losing your best friend. Um, when you think about the world losing him and, and losing a healthcare professional with that really unique view of the world, what do you think the world lost? You know, how would healthcare be different if he were here and were part of it, were, were a healthcare provider today? I think the thing you, you're afraid of most when you lose somebody, it doesn't matter who you lose. If you lose somebody close to you, the thing you fear most is that people won't remember them. Um, and specifically that people won't remember them the way you remember them. Um, that their legacy will be built around things they wrote on Facebook or pictures they took with somebody else and not the things that they said, the moments that you shared together. Um, so when I think about what the world would look like if Drew were still around, if people knew him the way I knew him, I think he's an example. He's, he's an image of where our generation is going, where the millennial generation is going, that we're able to, you know, Drew and I disagreed about a lot of things, <laughs> specifically politics. We disagreed a lot. <laughs> But we were comfortable disagreeing in a space where we always had common respect and appreciation for each other's differences. And so I think what Drew and healthcare professionals like him bring to the table is that sense of acceptance and belonging and welcoming in the arena of health and well-being. That it doesn't matter what you look like, what you talk like, how you walk, or who you go to bed with at night, that, that doesn't change the fact that you deserve to live a happy and healthy life. And I love that he brought that to his work 
uh, and he brought that to his personal life. He brought that to his social life. He truly lived the values that he was preaching uh, inside his office. So I think I think the world would be a whole lot better off if we had a lot more Drew-type healthcare professionals that just cared for people, um, didn't necessarily think about the bottom line, didn't think about all of the things, all the baggage that somebody's bringing in the door, but rather just helping them find their happy, healthy life. So when you think about your experiences immediately after the shooting, what were your experiences with healthcare professionals like? And are there any interactions with healthcare professionals after the shooting that really stand out for you as being particularly memorable? Yeah, you know, I um, because I wasn't physically injured, I didn't right away have a lot of um, contact with healthcare professionals. Uh, but as time went on and I realized that wounds are much more than skin deep, um, I started reaching out to some mental health care professionals in my area, um, specifically ones who had made themselves available to victims and families of the Pulse shooting. I think what stood out for me was the sense of community and family that I found in Drew was suddenly very alive in these interactions I was having with people I'd never met before. And I don't know that I expected that. I think in some ways it surprised me because of all these barriers, these mental barriers I had built between myself and the healthcare industry uh, over the years thinking, well, I don't deserve that. I'm not the same as everybody else, so I shouldn't have the same access to healthcare. I'm a liability. All of a sudden, it felt different. I I felt that everywhere I went. I felt that with every single person that I talked to. They were all there for us. Um, And I don't know if one in particular jumps out at me, but I know that I've come in contact with a few people that were able to put aside everything else, everything else that happened in their own life, any ideas they had of what was right and what was wrong, um, personally, morally, socially, to just say, how can I help? And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's been uh, remarkable. I think, again, it's been very impactful for me. And it's shaped what I'd like to do for other people as time goes on. You know, June 11th, I was about as complacent as it gets. I had great friends. We went on vacation a lot. I had a great job. And so I thought, well, I could do this for the rest of my life. And uh, June 12th changed everything. And the response that I've seen specifically from the mental health care professionals that I've come in contact with have made me realize that my calling, my purpose is so much more than just to be complacent, but rather that we all have an obligation, no matter what our field is, to make the world a better place for other people to live in. How has being a survivor, and when I say a survivor of gun violence, you know, I'm not thinking about um, survivors as as just being folks who've had a physical wound, because as you noted, the emotional wounds are are just as enduring and just as painful. Um, How has being a survivor of gun violence changed the way you experience the world around you? A lot. I just look at people differently, I think. And it's hard to describe because before June 12th, I, I um, I was in my bubble. And, and people get that way. You see things on the news. Uh, you hear about things down the street. But if it doesn't affect you, you stay comfortable in your zone. And I was one of those people where, you know, I'd turn on CNN and I'd see a horrific bombing and I would be, I would be engaged for about 30 seconds before the, new, the next news clip came on. But having been through something like that, having been forced into a situation where 
you have to rely on people you've never met for your own mental well-being, for your own survival, has changed the way that I view other people and changed the way that I view my own role in their lives. So everyone that has been a part of the Pulse tragedy, every piece of that is my family. And I mean that genuinely, that you know there have been several other survivors that I didn't know prior to Pulse that truly are an extension of my family. They're my brothers to me, and I would do anything for them. Um, so I think that that is the fundamental way that I've changed, that I look at people as human beings, not as news clippings, that I look at tragedies as how can I help rather than how quickly can I change the channel. And um, it's a challenge, I think, for our society, for our communities to do that because we're so trained with the 24-hour news cycle and social media to simply flip the channel as fast as possible so as not to become emotionally invested. But it's impossible for me now to look at people dealing with these things, look at people facing the same kinds of tragedies and not feel emotionally invested. I'm, I'm suddenly very invested in their well-being. And I, I just, I hope that through grief and loss, that I can replace that with a sense of passion and drive to, again, just make the world a better place for other people. You had mentioned that I think nine years ago, you and your dad had not parted on good terms. How did the Pulse shooting change your relationship with your dad or did it? You know, it's so funny you asked me that. And I, maybe it's the timing of our talk together that's perfect. Um, but it didn't change anything until yesterday. Wow. Um, we'd had conversations since Pulse, and you know he's changed a lot in nine years. Um, he's certainly not the same person that he was back then. Um, he's grown a lot. He's learned a lot. He's much more accepting and positive than he was back then. But I don't know that he really put it all together until yesterday afternoon. And I, so I don't live in Orlando currently. I live in Tallahassee, which is about four hours away. And uh, my dad said, hey, I'm coming for a visit. This is his first one. And I said, well, I definitely don't want you to come to Tallahassee because I've only lived here a few months. I want you to come to Orlando. That's my home. Um, so I picked him up. And when I picked him up, I said, I'm so sorry, but there's this YouTube guy who wants to do an interview on Sunday. And I don't want it to impede on our vacation, but I feel like it's really important because I like the message he's going to tell. And he said, oh, it's no problem. I'll go along with you. So I brought him with me yesterday. And he was sitting on a couch kind of across the way from us. And I could see out of the corner of my eye, not only did he cry at times during the interview, but he was totally engaged and mesmerized the entire time. As we wrapped the interview, he said kind of with tears still drying on his face to the producer, this was important for me. Uh, and he said, I think this was the most healing thing that my son and I needed in years. So for him, I, I mean, I know it was impactful for me. I know that it changed things for me, but I think he really needed to be there and to hear the story from beginning to end, to hear me talk about meeting Drew and, and getting to know him and becoming best friends and what it meant to me to lose him. And we followed up our interview by going to Pulse together. And that was the number one thing when I, when I said, what do you want to do on your vacation? That was the number one place he wanted to stop and see. Really? 
Yeah. So it was important to him. It was important to him. I think he, you know, he wanted to feel connected to what happened. He wanted to understand what it was like to be me uh, more so than he ever had in my entire life. I'm 28 years old and I've never seen him so passionate about understanding what it feels like to be me. So we stood there at Pulse. And again, I, a moment sticks out to me. I think it's because I never saw my dad cry when I was a kid. He just, he's not a crier. But I found a picture of Drew and Juan sitting on a fence and I picked up a Sharpie and, you know, I usually do when I go, I, I wrote a little message to them um, and I turned around and my dad was crying again. And he just reached out and gave me a huge hug and said, I want you to know, just like Drew's last words to you were, I love you. I'm human. I've made mistakes, but I want you to know I'm sorry. So that was really, that was a big moment for us. It's, uh, it's been, like I said, 28 years. And that was, that was big. Well, and it sounds like your dad has grown closer to you through this horrible experience, but he's reaching across that divide to try to, to try to know you is what it sounds like to me to try to know you and what it's like to be you. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't, I didn't know that that would ever happen. I also introduced him to my partner. It's the first man in my life he's ever met. So this was a really big weekend. For That's, this, I was going to say, you fit like every major life event kind of thing all in one weekend. How did he react? Did he like your partner? How did that go? He did. You know, he's a very, um, he's a stoic guy. So uh, you know, Eric was panicking and he's nervous and he, well, I don't know if your dad's going to like me and what do I dress like? And should I bring another change of clothes? Right. He's really nervous. And so we went through dinner and my dad was his usual stoic self. And so we went home and Eric said, I don't know if he liked me. I said, trust me, he liked you. And he'll tell me. Um, so the next day we were in the car and my dad said, son, I want to tell you something. And I said, okay. He said, I like Eric. I think he's nice and I can tell he means a lot to you. So I like him. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. How did it change like your feelings about your dad or did it change your feelings about your dad seeing how he reacted to meeting your first partner? I mean, your first partner that he's met. I was so proud of him. We really had a rocky time when I was a kid. And, you know, he was honest with me on this trip too and said, listen, you being gay was very hard for me. And it wasn't hard for me because I didn't love you or didn't accept you. It was because I was afraid. And I was scared for your safety. And that came out in ways that were ugly. And it came out in ways that I didn't mean it to. But ultimately, my fear for you was that you were going to go away and something bad would happen to you. And I couldn't bear that thought. So for him to be so in it this weekend and so unashamed about his love and passion for just having a great time with his son. I mean, he, like you said, I, we crammed every major life event. <laughs> He met my best friend who is about as gay and obnoxious as it comes. And he, he wanted to take selfies and go to dinner. And so I, I was um, more than anything, so proud of my dad for the things he's been able to overcome himself and for his strength, the true strength of character from him to show how genuine and kind he is. It's not always been easy for him, but he did it this weekend. And I thought that was beautiful. That's amazing. And it sounds like his, his fear when you were growing up was that something horrible would happen to you because you're gay. And then something horrible happens to you that in no way was invited by anything you had done and not by being gay, right? Like a horrible thing happened 
and it wasn't your fault. And I, I bet it was a wake up call for your dad too, to recognize how scary it could have been to lose you. Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, I'm thinking about our interview yesterday and a moment that stood out to me as maybe it was more meaningful to me than it was to him. It was almost as if I was talking to him while I was doing this section of the interview, talking about what it was like to grow up gay and how that, how that impacted my recovery from pulse. What I was saying was, this is the reality for gay children, for people who identify as LGBTQ. They are constantly in fear of losing their lives or being bullied or being punished, being injured because of who they are. They're constantly telling themselves that maybe they deserve it. Maybe that's what's coming. Maybe their family, their friends, their teachers were all right. And this is what you get when you choose to be this way. And so, you know, I kind of forayed into this, this section of the interview and said, that is how I felt as a kid. And it hurts that it actually happened. It hurts that it came true. But all I want young people to know is that you didn't deserve it. It's not what's coming to you. It happens because people are full of hatred. And all we can do is gather together and share love for each other. And I think that was meaningful for him to hear because he, he could understand the role that he played in that as a kid and maybe not protecting me in the way that he thought he was. Uh, and that kind of led to our bigger conversations. Well, and I think that fear, you know, that parents have, and I know when I came out to my parents, that was certainly their fear that something bad would happen to me. I think oftentimes parents don't, don't realize that the best way that they can support their LGBTQ young person, teen, child, is to work toward creating a world where their kids don't have to be afraid. And I think it takes a long time for parents to come to that realization. It sounds like your dad has come such a long way. I'm blown away. I, that's not what I expected out of our vacation at all. I thought we'd do <laughs> a couple days at Disney and he'd say, all right, see you later. <laughs> right. And instead you ended up with what sounds like a pretty big transformation to your relationship. Yeah, it feels like it. So when you um, think about healthcare professionals out there, what do you want them to know about gun violence, the impact it has on survivors, and also what healthcare professionals and, can do about, about gun violence and gun safety? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, this is kind of what I've been preaching. I've been on a soapbox here for a couple of weeks now. And I think the healthcare industry, I think healthcare professionals know better. But my caution would be, don't get so wrapped up in the hype. Don't get so wrapped up in the media retelling that you forget that the effects of gun violence um, don't go away after the injuries are over. Don't forget that just because somebody made it through surgery and they're out of their last cast, that there are decades of damage hiding in there that uh, have to be reversed. It, it can be disheartening at moments in time when that's what gets coverage. That's mm -hmm. what gets airtime because it's easy for people to relate to visually. Somebody walking with a cast or somebody with a cane, that is a visual reminder of what happened. But my fear, my concern is always what happens next. What happens when their cane goes away and the cameras turn off? 
Um, and that's where healthcare professionals have to play the role. I think more than ever, once the physical injuries are recovered from, um, we have to double down and reinvest in the mental health of, of all people that are affected by gun violence. In essence, you're thrown into a war zone. And unlike a law enforcement official or even you know, someone in the military, you're not trained to deal with those situations. You don't know what comes next. Um, you deal with survivor's guilt. You wonder if maybe you just hadn't made that phone call or that text message. That person wouldn't have gone with you and they, they would have survived. So my plea to healthcare professionals is simply don't forget us once the cast comes off and continue to provide the wonderful services that you do. Continue to be caring and compassionate and accepting because it's going to take a long time to recover from something like that. Thank you for being on MDASH. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For show notes for today's episode, visit www.em-podcast.com. 